Tēnā koutou no mai, hi to my welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Today, six months into his role, an exclusive interview with Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown. Then, the local government minister tackles co-governance head-on. From the perspective of ratepayers, do you accept this model is not strictly a one-person, one-vote model? Yes. And I ask one of the world's preeminent free speech advocates about her concerns with hate speech laws. Not only do they not advance equality, they actually tend to do the opposite. We'll have that interview for you shortly. Minutes mattered. Those are the words of former Police Commissioner Mike Bush, who led the independent review into Auckland Council's response to the January floods. The review was critical of senior leadership, including the Mayor and Chief Executive, and made a number of recommendations to better serve Auckland in the future. Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown is with us this morning. Kia ora, good morning. Morena. Um, I'm going to break this interview into two parts. So in the first part, we'll talk about the review, your response, the response of other senior leaders in Auckland Council, and then in the second part, we'll talk about some of the other issues facing Auckland. So, four people died in the Auckland anniversary floods. Four people. What role did the council dysfunction play in those deaths? I think a lot of that came from the fact that the city was clearly unprepared for that volume of water. So that might go back a long way. Why did we have so many people living in floodable areas? Why did we have a northern busway that gathered water and flooded buses? Um, in terms of what went on that night, the people, the fire and emergency and those groups went out there and, and helped those people, but a lot of that should never have gotten the circumstance in the first place. Mm. There was very poor preparation over a long period of time. Mm. Why have got so many houses on top of cliffs? Why have we got people with houses that are in floodplains that flooded? Those are, those are entirely legitimate questions, and I'm interested as to your answers and solutions for those problems in just a moment. But, but I wonder about, on the night itself... What role did the council dysfunction on the night play in those deaths? Well, I don't think the um, response that night was, was anything to boast about. And in fact, uh, I think it was very poor. Mm. Uh, I was guilty most of all of assuming that they knew what they were doing. Um, I was there in the, in the office. Mm. It, it was a very wet night. The, the weather report didn't actually predict anything like what happened. Mm. Um, and uh, I've learned a lot from um, what we've got out of the review, actually. Well, there was a whole lot of things about, happened in there that we, I didn't know were happening. What, what have you learned about your own role? And, and what have you learned about leadership? Well, leadership is... Um, I'm demonstrating that and making the whole city better and fixing Auckland. Mm -hmm. That's where my leadership is going to be shown. Well, what do you think but your in terms of leadership on the there, night demonstrated? Well, I just followed through what was... Uh, what unveiled... Unveiled in front of me, you know, we, I played what was in front of me. Uh, it transpired that um, uh, somebody else made a decision that I wouldn't lead the um, media um, and without telling me. So I didn't know I wasn't supposed to be doing that. I've learned that um, quite a lot of things didn't work well, mm. and uh, we one of the things that came out of the um, review was that there's a list of things to fix and I've already told the CEO, get yeah. them going. You've yeah. got a month to become it to you me have. that everything in that is underway. Okay, I, I'm interested though in, in the lessons for you about leadership from that evening and there's a word in the report that stuck out to me. The word is empathy. It appears four times in the Mike Bush report. Here's an example. Early messaging lacked empathy to assuage people's fears. Who do you think that was directed to? Well, the early messaging didn't come from me because that came from the actual people in, in the organisation. Mm. And uh, I was told to wait around for the um, 
uh, signing of the declaration so, of so emergency. You, you don't think that line there, early messaging lacked empathy to assuage people's fears? Well, it probably did lack empathy, but in fact... Was I, for you? No, it was for whoever gave the members, uh, and I would have given the um, messages that had been asked to me, that, my role. But in fact, they had decided that they would do that, the people working in there. Do you think you had an empathetic tone that evening? Well, I think the most empathetic things I did was, A, staying there till it was two in the morning before I left and finding out what we could about the whole thing mm. uh, and insisting that the chief executive and all those other ones showed up at half past eight the next morning mm. so we could go through and learn from the lessons. OK, let's talk about your first public appearance, though. That first press conference, you spent several minutes defending your own actions before acknowledging the death that had already been reported at that stage and the real scale of the flooding. Was that empathetic? I don't think I was elected for that. I was elected to fix Auckland. Um, and as far as empathy goes, mm. as soon as I found the Prime Minister coming up on a tax-paid helicopter, I hired one myself so I could go and have a look mm. out and work, work out what was happening. So the day so after the So I got the out there yeah. full of knowledge. Yeah, the and day, I just the... met the Prime Minister. Right. He'd only been the Prime Minister for a couple of days as well by then. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in asking about empathy because, as I say, that's something that comes up time and time again in the report. So the day after so the floods... competence, mate. So, so the day after... We'll get to that in a moment. The, the day after well, the floods, when you were asked about people whose homes had been destroyed, and 350 were red-stickered, of course, you said... Some of those houses, when you think about it, shouldn't have been where they are. Well, Was that's that... empathetical. That's very empathetic. I'm worried about the fact that some people were put into a position they shouldn't have been in mm. by the actions of people that had gone on before. That's a hell of a lot more important. Mm. I mean, I've felt sorry for those people. I was out there looking at it, and I went out the, the following day straight away with the building inspectors so to ensure that they weren't being overly harsh on those people. Because quite right. easily, you can red sticker everybody, in fact... Red stickers should be the very last thing you do. Yeah. So, so do you think if you were someone who'd just lost your home and you were watching Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown on the TV and he said, well, when you think about it, some of those homes shouldn't have been built there in the first place, that would have given the impression of empathy? I think you've got to get past this. This is a long-term big fix-up. Mm. Uh, I have empathy the for, the for rate you yeah, 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 I have empathy for people who are facing high mortgages. Mm. I have empathy for the city that should be performing a lot better. Mm. Perhaps I'm, I'm uh, you know, didn't go and hug people. I'm not a hugger. No. Uh, you've said that you've learnt from the report. Yes. And uh, there are several examples on that empathy point that maybe question what lessons you've taken. So at a business lunch this week, you were asked about the media drongos comment, the famous media drongos comment. You said you didn't call the media drongos, you just called one guy a media drongo, and he worked for Today FM, and then you smiled in front of a packed audience of powerful people, and you said, oh, well, now it's yesterday FM. That's actually a sense of humour. Um, you're allowed to have one. Is, is that an empathetic thing to say about a young person who's just been made redundant? It wasn't about a young person who'd been made redundant. Uh, it was an organisation that fell over. You, you picked him out. You said it was one media drongo who worked for oh, Today well, FM. One, pe one person there w was wanted me to get out of bed early to have be interviewed um, about who didn't know the difference between rates and taxes. Mm. Now, so I said, if, if you don't know the difference, so you made a joke at his that? expense about no, him losing his, his expense. Job. That was no, no. That was the go back and read what it said. I am. I, it was about the organisation. Yeah. Um, so empathy was one thing that came through in the report. Slowness was the other, and as I said earlier, minutes mattered, according to Mike Bush. Well, they did. I want to read you this quote. When put in charge, take charge. 
As a manager, you've been selected to provide leadership at a particular level. Your team will respond quickly if they sense you're in charge. Well, that, I totally, yeah, I said that. Do you know where that's, yeah, you know where that's that. from? That's, that's from your book. That, oh, no, that's what I've said, and, and I agree. But do you think you, do you think you, oh, I'm not the chief executive. I was the mayor. Exactly. The so chief executive is in charge of those people. Mm. He has a responsibility to. Because the other day someone said um, uh, that I should set the um, the character and the control, or the, uh, no, the within the organisation, the culture of the organisation. Every chief executive mm. has within their CEO description to mm. improve the culture of the organisation. The mayor is in charge of a randomly selected group of 20 councillors. Mm. I'm not in charge of anyone who works in there. I am not able to directly direct any person. I, we direct the chief executive yeah. to carry out... It's about leadership, though, isn't it? Well, leadership is getting the council behind yeah. facing some of the big problems we've got. I'm and the big, big problems, problems are I there. Don't I will. Just just, I'm just going through the one. report that you, that you commissioned. Right, so um, that, that was a quote from your book. Here's another quote from your book, page 66. Doing nothing because you're caught in the headlights without a plan is never the right thing. Do you think, reflecting well, on that night, that that is the impression that people had of you? Well, we were caught in the headlights. I wasn't instructed. I received no information. You can't see from my office what's going on in Henderson or South mm. Auckland. We only learnt what was going on in South Auckland from people who, ran, who were ringing and from um, premises mm. I owned out there to say they were flooding. And I'm mm. thinking, gosh... Why haven't I heard that from an organisation? Mm. I didn't. Uh, uh, nobody contacted me directly. You've got to understand with that thing, they didn't have my phone number. They had the phone number of another Wayne Brown who worked in emergency management. Mm. So if they can't ring the mayor to tell you what's going on, you can't be expected to know. Mm. I should have known better. Had I known better, I would have done more about it. Mm. Let's talk about some of those communications. How and many times did you and CEO Jim Stavick speak on that evening? Uh, he sent me a text telling me that there was some flooding in West Auckland and it will abate in two hours and he went home. Right. Did you speak any more that evening? Not to him, no. Did because you call him? Uh, uh, one of the senior managers came in, and uh, Philip Wilson, and identified mm. himself as the senior manager in charge of the process that night. So we dealt with him. Mm. Right, but you didn't talk to the CEO yourself? No, we, well, when someone presents themselves as being put in charge and taking charge, you deal with them. Right. That was Philip Wilson. Have you spoken to CEO Jim Stabick since the report was released? Yes, and I have sent him a, a clear letter instructing him that within a month they've got to have mm. put in place all of the recommendations from this report. Mm. Plus, um, uh, we want to be able to run an unannounced full workout of it Bearing in mind, a lot of these things have been sitting around for years. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Chris Farfoy um, published a report about a flood 18 months beforehand and neither he mm. nor the government nor the council did a single thing about it. Who do you think uh, the report identified was more at fault, you or Jim Stabick? It says council. Mm. And the council is everybody. Yeah, it is, it, but, it, but, but leadership it, comes my from responsibility, the top. As, as per, as my, resp book. my responsibility... Mm is to lead the council. Mm. The chief executive's responsibility is to lead the organisation. And, and if you carefully read that, you'll see that legally mm. there is an entitlement. We so, all could so, have done so, better. So, no, we did, all could have done I, better. I, yeah, I think and everyone I, agrees you I apologised. Have you heard an apologise from yeah, the others? No, you were contrite. Um, but, I apologised for dropping the ball. I didn't realise the ball hadn't been thrown to me. <laughs> um, to be clear, though, 
what you're saying is that as per the report, the way you interpreted the report, CEO Jim Stavik was at greater fault that evening But we're in not the talking about fault. I'm you. interested in the repairs. What? You, you guys are fixed on fault finding. Well, we have to know I, what went wrong well, in order we, to know we what goes wrong right. years right? ago. Mm. In 2016, a report was brought out which I, was, I did not know about mm. and I did not know that it had been enacted upon. Mm. And that was... Seven years ago, mate. Yeah. No, I agree. So um, we, we need to understand what we, went wrong in order to know how to improve it, right? And that's why I commissioned the report. And exactly. it has unearthed a lot of things that went wrong, and we are about to do that. Can, can but we'll, nobody died because of lack of empathy. They died because of lack of planning of, of um, where they are living and the stormwater management. And you've got to raise a whole lot of things. Would three waters have made things better? To be, to be an effective leader, you have to bring people with you. You yes, have to have I'd good relationships. The having the vision is one thing, but you have to bring people with you. And having empathy is how you bring people with you. Not necessarily. Having a clear vision and having uh, good results will mm. bring people with you. Mm. Was it a good result that night? Not at all. But mm. what will come out of it will be a good result. We are looking to fix things and prevent things. I'm not going to just have a report and do nothing about it for seven years. No, you, can be, you can be absolutely sure of that. Let me ask this. Do you have confidence in Jim Stabick, the CEO? I think it's another thing you've got to make confidence. You deal with the people who are there. Sure. Someone asked me, asked the but, Prime but Minister, who'd been in the Prime Minister for two days, if he had confidence in me. He was the Prime Minister. I'm the Mayor. Um, and do, do, you do deal you have... with who is given you. Sure, sure. I, I understand that position. But I think given you only spoke once that evening, many Aucklanders will be wondering about the relationship you have with CEO Jim Stavick. So my question is, in the five months that he has remaining in the job, do you have confidence in him? He's been told what to do for, with regard to that thing and he's got a month to do it. Let's see whether he does it. Uh, Councillor Sharon Stewart is the chair of the Civil Defence and Emergency Management Committee. She has been for a long time. Do you have confidence in her in that role? Well, that was an interesting thing. The first thing I had to do when you become the mayor mm. is meet the 20 councillors mm. and uh, allocate their responsibilities as best you can in a one-hour interview with each one mm. on what are their skill sets and what. Eight of them wanted to be the deputy mayor. Nine of them wanted to be on the Auckland Transport mm. Committee. Only one person wanted to be on the CDEM committee, and that was Sharon Stewart. Is she and competent? She, well, she had been there for eight years. For 12 years. Is she competent? And none of, well, I've only, I'd only just met her and I've only mm. just discovered her skill sets on that now. And so now but you've seen the skill sets. Two mayors is, is had she, her there fine. for six years in a row. I'm not so asking I'm about those mayors. Okay. Yeah, so is she competent? She's flustered a bit. And uh, Do you have confidence in her in that role going forward? We've asked for the, um, an immediate response from the chief executive and that committee who are going to meet Mm. and uh, I haven't yet discussed that with all my fellow councillors. Mm. I personally don't have um, you know, the ability to do everything. I have to do things with councillors, mm. and we will, we will consider that. Uh, it would be fair to say that it wasn't a glorifying moment of her life, mm. but she's a good person mm. and means well. Um, finally then, um, one of the lines from the report is this. The issues of leadership exposed by this crisis must be addressed. Key leaders in Auckland City failed to appreciate the vital importance of visible leadership. So when the report was released on Wednesday, why didn't you do a press conference? I was at a previously long-term organised meeting about the, the light rail with the Minister. But you could have arranged the... for the report to be released at a time you didn't have those commitments. 
Well, I didn't actually arrange it. Some of the staff organised that. But, but the, I was at it. The importance of visibility, right? So why wouldn't you make sure, well, as the leader... No, I know you. it's great. We appreciate you being here. But why wouldn't you make yourself available to all media? Because I was... For all, well, um, a lot of the media um, are, are just so um, abrasive and corrosive. I don't want to talk to them, frankly. And I'm not getting elected this year. Mm. You've got other people queuing up to be, to the check to you. Visibility, isn't it? And it's really critical. Well, of your very lack visible of visibility. about the things that are going to matter. The people yeah. should understand from me that I am going to fix everything up. Okay. Well, and ask you about going that. To, in a few no, I'm going to. Uh, yeah. that, that's what is mo that's leadership. Mm. Leadership is what repairs things. Mm. I, I think everyone agrees on that point. The question is how you repair the things you see faults well, with. Well, let's get on with that. And bringing people with you, because that's what you need to do. Good well, leaders mate, have to I'll bring br people I'll with I'll them. I'll be absolutely bringing the ratepayers with me. Yeah. Don't worry about that. They're well, the people who I was elected for, not you. I'm a ratepayer. Yeah, but not as a media. <laughs> I know you're a ratepayer. <laughs> you and I have paid race together. Yeah, <laughs> all right. All right, we'll be back in a minute. We'll ask you about some of the solutions to Auckland's problems in a moment. Stay with us. Mia Wayne Brown is back after the break. <laughs> Hokimai, welcome back. Auckland Council has until June to figure out how to plug its $295 million budget hole. In his first budget as Auckland's Mayor, Wayne Brown is proposing combining modest rate increases with cuts in spending, asset sales and a small increase in borrowing. But the proposals are proving contentious. Here's reporter Ira Lee. It's party time in Mount Roskill, but this isn't your typical bash. The submissions party was really born out of the idea that we want to make politics and civic engagement a lot more fun for young people. We're going to be having some pretty deep discussions about the things that we care about in our community. On Thursday night, days before public feedback channels for Auckland's budget closed last month, people gathered at a community hall. They urged councillors not to cut funding for the things they say enrich their lives. These are things that are very dear to our heart within our community. So say within Diwali festivals or even Big Gay Out, you know, these are the spaces for certain communities for us to express who we are. Everything from library hours to arts programs, environmental initiatives and cultural events are under threat. Party host Pukatapapa Youth Foundation is one of many community organisations in the firing line. The number of stuff we do every year will probably have to be reduced if with a reduced budget. Worst case, that the current stats will continue on forwards where we see young people disengage from the communities, we see young people disengage from decisions that they should care about because they do affect them. In a city still reeling from severe weather events, one advocacy group wants to make it known the budget proposal isn't a done deal. Better Budget spokesperson and Green candidate Savine Sanis Walgampola says climate change is ignored. A bit of a slap in the face for all of those who are out in communities doing like getting our buckets. You know, the mayor told us what he wanted us to do, get a bucket. But well, we were out there with the buckets. We were out there cleaning out homes. Better Budget for Auckland is promoting higher rates and debt as an alternative to what it calls austerity. Even though this is just a one-year budget, this will have long-term consequences if we do not act now in recognising the dangers if this passes as it stands. Across town, lobby group Auckland Ratepayers Alliance supports making savings, but says the mayor is targeting the wrong things. It might work for the officials to cut frontline services 
it doesn't work for ratepayers when it's so clear there can be cuts in back offices, communications or non-core council functions like um, some of the CCOs. Spokesperson Jordan Williams worked for the mayor's election rivals last year. He says rates rises below inflation aren't sustainable, but neither is borrowing more to make up for the shortfall, even if council is below its self-imposed cap. Seventeen dollars to $19,000 borrowed by previous councils um, for every Auckland household. We are in fact in a position to borrow and you know what, now is the time. We are the future generation, so if we're the ones telling you we need to invest, then we'd like that voice to be heard. Now that interest rates are going up, that's totally unsustainable. The mayor and councillors have until the end of June to make any tweaks to their budget for the next financial year. Until then, community groups hope the mayor will have a change of heart. That you can have your cake and eat it too, protect frontline services, but you've really got to tackle those that bloated headquarters and particularly those CCOs that aren't necessarily performing core functions of council. Please reconsider the actions or reconsider the implications of the cuts because um, Although it might just be a cut from like a balance sheet, it might just be a balance sheet figure. There are like deep flowing on consequences for like the community as a large that need to definitely be considered. Ira Lee with that report and we're back with Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown. No one is denying you have a $295 million budget hole. Why not have slightly higher rates so that you can avoid cutting some of those community services? Well, we've proposed a mixture of things. Mm. Um, We've got, well, I want to sell a large asset which has lost money and, and it costs us a lot of money to have. Yeah. The best way of not avoid, to have fixed a $295 million hole was not get, get one in the first place. Mm. Whereas the bloke who caused that is now the ambassador to England. I'm not sure that that's a particularly good incentive for me in the future. Um, if we don't sell the airport shares, the cuts will mm. be more severe. Mm. And the rate rises will be more severe. And there was one bloke in there suggesting we borrow more. Um, we, we, borrowing has been the default mechanism for years. Mm. And, and that's been during a period when borrowing was cheap. Well, it isn't anymore. Yeah. And um, the cost of borrowing is um, going up. And, uh, and there's nobody out there who would have um, been happy about borrowing more for their own mortgage. Let me mortgage. ask about these numbers. Through the consultation documents, according to staff, each 1% that is added to rates increases, adds about 54 cents a week for the average rate payer. Now, I'm not suggesting that's nothing, but an extra 1% increase is worth $20 million to the council, a 2% increase, $1.08 for the average Auckland rate payer or homeowner per week brings in $40 million a year, and that could prevent some of those cuts. So what you're saying is we is $300 million short, mm. so that means we'd have to be increase rates by 15%. No, it, well, then that's what that argument leads you to. Well, go, and the that's, other that's ones say we should just borrow more, which will be even worse. Well, well, no, because what you're suggesting a rates increase is lower than the rate of inflation. So well, even to had, take it to the rate of inflation, for well, example, that may well be what that, comes that out might of this. Save more, right, okay. That may well be what comes out of this. But um, I have so some you are counsel. considering higher rates level. No, I, I have come up with a suggestion mm. to be discussed. Discussed. And it will come back to all of the councillors. Some councillors mm. are telling me that in South Auckland people would like to pay more rates in order to keep services. I, I've got businesses in South Auckland. Yeah. I haven't found a single person who agrees with that on the street. Um, we've had the last six years, mm. everyone got richer in Auckland as their houses went up and up and up. And we had 3% rate rises. Mm. And uh, 
Now, when the houses are going back down again and their mortgages have gone up by a hell of a lot, um, people are saying, spend more on rates. Mm. Uh, I don't think that's fair on those people. I think that um, uh, um, what was said by the one of those gentlemen there about ha hard cuts in the, in the back rooms, I'd rather cut back room stuff rather than mm. services. And there has to be some cuts. If there isn't cuts, it's going to be cuts in people's um, home... Uh, economics. Right. And that's not a good place to do it. Is the government going to cut you a special deal on the City Rail Link budget blowout? Well, that's another reason why you have to have some reserve um, for debt. We are talking about that. The City Rail Link is in itself quite a good project. It was just mm. being very badly set up by National in the first place and mm. further buggered up by Labor afterwards. Mm. Um, I'm astounded that here's the thing well underway, it's still four years away yeah. from opening. We still don't know who's going to own it. We still haven't worked out how we're going to split the costs of the, um, or even who's going to pay for the railway crossings. If you don't have railway crossings, yeah. it's a waste of money. It won't work. So, so, so there's a lot of things not sorted. That budget blowout, though, contractually, Auckland Council is up 50%, but do you think the, uh, the government's going to cut you some slack on that? Well, I'd re we, are, we are talking to them about a whole range of yeah. issues and I want to do deals here and there. At the moment when the government's tossing money out the window for mm -hmm. a th um, uh, designing a light rail for which there is no business case and probably will never be one and promising new bridges and everything, it seems a bit unfair that they have enough money to help us out with the city railing. And I, one of my five policies was finish the big projects, mm. see how they go before we start other ones. Right. Why were houses built on cliffs and in areas that flood? Well, sadly, I, I think um, a series of unwise decisions have been made. In many cases, mm. the council has said no to some of those things and then off you go to an independent commissioner who might make a, a, a decision based on some legal thing without looking at the real problems. And in many cases, when they get a negative one, everyone lawyers up and off to the environment court. Mm. And, the, and so when a council says no, it should be able to mean no. Mm. And And... So, so cliffs, you know, did people not notice cliffs? <laughs> um, they're, they're most unwise to build above or below a cliff. So, so let me ask this then. For, for people for whom it makes no sense to rebuild their properties, who have uh, insurance that will cover the cost of the rebuild but not insurance that will cover the cost of the land, should they be compensated for the cost of their land? Well, maybe tip it over. Should people who, uh, who have built insensible places and who pay rates be forced to pay more for people who have made poorer choices. So do you not support? Do you not support those people being compensated? I think that that's a decision that the government has to be deeply involved in. Because but I mean, they were under Auckland Council, right? But in a lot of cases, it's, it was under the Environment Court. What do we see? The judges. Um, I feel particularly um, empathetic, which is a nice word you'd like to hear from me, about those poorer people who are in suburbs which should ne streets which should never have ha been built on. That's mm. one we showed to those poor people struggling through the wet that day there mm. out in West Auckland. I went out there and the houses were built right at the road level. Mm. Uh, if the road floods, the house floods. Mm. And, he, and some lessons... So, so we went to Mangere yesterday yeah. with Kainga Ora, the government's housing arm, and they built houses flooded. that flooded straight right. away as well. So, and so, right on the ground level. So and not the Kainga Ora, but the, but the, the people who... who for whom it doesn't make sense to rebuild their houses in the same place yet again and have them flood yet again, should they be compensated? And should Auckland Council stump up some of that compensation? Well, that's a decision which I can't personally make. But what's your position on it? My position on it is that with, with some of those people out there, I've first of all mm. asked for a detailed assessment of the catchments 
Right. Clean, is so, cleaning the catchment out? Sure. If, there are, if all of those other solutions, those engineering solutions, are put, they don't work, we, we reach a decision where we say, you know what, it just makes no sense to rebuild a house here. Should they be compensated for the value of their land? That's a decision which I can't make personally. I know, but what's your position? It's, it's very difficult because I can't set a, tre- a precedent for right across New Zealand. That's mm. a government decision. And uh, the, the government has to be involved mm. and govern a bit yeah. um, with things that we raise rather than uh, coming up with schemes that we haven't asked for. We need answers to those questions. And mm. they're very difficult questions that involve this. Insurance Council has mm. a part to play here. No, and also, government, of in course. some of those streets there, yeah. had they built... On poles and like in Queensland, up a metre. Sure, those houses would have been fine. Let me ask you. You can have a road flooding. It's mm. the houses that go where the problem is. Will you go for a second term? Well, it's two years. Two years away to even think about that. But are you enjoying yourself? Sometimes. I I, I like a challenge, um, but that's two years away. Mm. I don't know whether at that. And I, I believe that the response from the public is a lot stronger than the responses from the media to me. <laughs> hey, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate you being here. Okay. Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown. If I you want to contact about Three Waters. Huh? Oh, okay. What's your line on Three Waters? Well, would Three Waters have stopped any of this? No. And and would it help? No. And uh, have, have we still got there? I mean, the the minister mm. has just fixed the politics of mm. it, but has it made it work better? And I know a bit about that. Mm. I I know here and I know Northland. I've owned waters mm. and road schemes and built them, and. My concern is about mm. will this make things better, and I can't see the it. And you can not. sort out mm. stormwater. Uh, you can sort out rather water supplies and sewers, okay. but the stormwater yeah. is the road. Yeah. Are we losing the road? There's some big questions there. All right, thank you. We'll That's make sure leadership. we put those. Talking about things that are important. <laughs> <laughs> Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown, if you want to contact the Q&A team, please call it or my. These are our main platforms. You can email us, find us on Twitter or Facebook. After the break, is co-governance democratic? And is the Three Waters rebrand enough to save the reforms? Three Waters is dead. Long live the affordable water reforms. To appease councils with what have been contentious proposals, the government's changed the name as well as the number of water entities from four to ten. That means a shift from the Scottish model on which Three Waters was partially based. And increasing local say comes at a greater cost for ratepayers. I sat down with local government minister Kieran McAnulty. Let's start with the co-governance issue. I know you're not calling it co-governance. That's what your predecessor called it for the longest time. Do all New Zealanders, Māori and non-Māori, have the same level of representation as a proportion of the population in those regional representative groups? No, they don't, because obviously we're proposing that mana whenua have 50-50 alongside local government reps. But there's a good reason for that, is that we signed a treaty the treaty recognises that Māori have special rights in water in particular, and that is something that's been tested in the courts and found to be uh, part of New Zealand law. When I was putting forward alternatives to, for Cabinet to consider, I wasn't willing to change on that because I think it's the right thing to do. If it was at a governance level, we might have got a different outcome. We probably would have, but it's not. It's a level down. Got a very specific role, and I think mana whenua should be represented. Do you accept that on those regional representative groups, as a proportion of the population, this is not a one-person, one-vote model. 
Well, it's not really a vote model, but I do accept that mana whenua have a higher proportion than what they have to the New Zealand population. From a ratepayer or taxpayer or member of the public's perspective, it is a one person, one vote question, isn't it? Because they are able to elect local officials through the local councils that go onto those groups. Well, you mentioned ratepayers, so in the context of local government, this isn't actually all that similar to what's already happening. Yeah. Local government have really close relationships yeah. with mana whenua. But from the perspective of ratepayers, do you accept this model is not strictly a one-person, one-vote model? Yes. The proportion of mana whenua is higher than the proportion of the population. Do you accept that that is not a strictly democratic model? There are provisions in our laws around the treaty that aren't democratic. Co-governance of uh, the Whanganui and Waikato River, for example. There are provisions that we have in this country that wouldn't stand up to a purely academic democratic framework. But that's not how we work in New Zealand. We recognise that this country was founded on a treaty that gives Māori particular rights and interests in certain things. And what we're proposing here, we believe, recognises that and complies with what previous court rulings have been. There's also an economic argument for this as well. The advice that we've received from the credit agencies, particularly now that we have more entities and some of them are quite small, is that the only way to make this affordable is to get what's called balance sheet separation. Mm. And we have been advised that if we have mana whenua on those groups, that helps those smaller entities achieve balance sheet separation. So however you look at it, if the objective of these reforms is to save ratepayers money, and this helps us do that, then I think ultimately New Zealanders will be comfortable with it. It's quite an extraordinary thing to hear a cabinet minister accept that reforms he is pushing through are not strictly democratic. If a one-person, one-vote measure is the test of a democracy. Well, we have had iwi representatives on local government for a long, long time. We've had separate Māori seats for a long, long time. There is a history of recognising the particular rights of Māori in this country. But I don't believe giving Māori something necessarily takes anything away from the rest of us. The objective of this is to save ratepayers money and New Zealanders have a very clear choice between one that we can demonstrate will save them money and the opposition's alternative which they cannot, they have not produced any figures to back up their claims. Ours has mana whenua representation, theirs does not. And I think Jack if you go out and speak to the average New Zealander and say what's more important to them, saving rates or not, they'll choose saving rates. I'll talk about those savings in just a moment. Do you think one person, one vote is an academic definition of democracy? I think it fails to uh, recognise that in each democratic system there are um, specific factors that are unique to each country. We, this country was founded on the Treaty of Waitangi and for generations it was ignored, it was overlooked, there were breaches. New Zealand takes that seriously now over successive governments. Now we might see uh, when some parties are in opposition that they um, cause a bit of a scene about that sort of stuff, but when they then go into government they take it seriously as well. We've moved a long way as a country, it's a journey that we're still part way through, but recognising that the democratic system of this country was based on a promise, on a contract, I think that it's on the Crown to observe those obligations and commitments that it made. The changes you've introduced are clearly designed to appease councils. Mayors have had a little bit of time to digest the new shape of the reforms. What sort of feedback are you getting? 
It's still mixed, but I never intended to get unanimous support from the local government sector. I would have been naive if that was my objective. All I wanted to do was find that balance, because there's a scale here. If we were only interested in economic efficiency, we would have proposed one entity. If we were only interested in ensuring local voice, then we would have done what the National Party have proposed and stick with the status quo. That's not sustainable. I mean, the, the National Party is not proposing to stick with the status quo. To be entirely clear, I appreciate that your reforms represent uh, change on a much greater scale, but to be clear, they're not proposing to stick with well, the status quo. I disagree. Quo. Everything that they've proposed can already happen. That is not a fundamental reform. If you talk to the local government sector, they say, we can't do this by ourselves. We need to reform. Now, there's a range of views as to what needs to happen, but what we've heard is that councils could do shared services. Well, that's happening, and it hasn't worked. Councils could form a CCO. That's happening already, and it hasn't worked. The only way to remove the debt from councils' balance sheets is to do what's called balance sheet separation, have entities that are owned by councils but run independently. National can't square that circle. They've promised a lot, but what they are landing on without backing it up with numbers, does not stack up. So under the previous model, when people questioned that uh, entity that included the lower part of the North Island and the top part of the South Island, the justification around that model was that it couldn't achieve balance sheet separation unless those two areas were combined, the bottom of the North, the top of the South. Now that's exactly what you've put through. How does that work? Well, we went and got further advice. If we were advised that what we're proposing now didn't achieve balance sheet separation, we wouldn't have done it. I'll give you an example. The easiest way to achieve both some form of savings and local voice would have been just simply to say, right, we're going to have 16 entities along the regional council boundaries. But that didn't work, because we've got unitary authorities in Gisborne and at the top of the South Island. We've got communities that are impoverished and in, 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 in many instances very low income, uh, low capacity to uh, account for any increased rates in Northland and in the west coast of the South Island. And so that's why we've landed on 10. Northland into Auckland, Gisborne into Hawke's Bay, the top of the south is one, west coast into Canterbury and Otago Southland. We wouldn't have landed there if we weren't confident and weren't advised that it would stack up. At this stage, how many councils do you think are likely to change their position from opposing the reforms to supporting them? I'm not going to be able to give you a number right now, but I can guarantee there'll be more in favour of this than there were in favour of four. There'll be members of communities from local democracy who have been very uh, vocal in their opposition to four entities. Some of those councils have indicated publicly their support for this. Keeping disgruntled regional mayors happy is costing everyday Kiwis and the irony of the affordable water reforms is that they are less affordable from a ratepayers perspective than the previous model. Why is that good for New Zealanders? Well, we've got to look at it in the entire context. The alternative is that, in my view, we will be stuck with the status quo. We'll be stuck with a system that simply won't deliver any cost savings. Well, you could have gone with the four entity model. We could have, but let's be honest. You've said so yourself. This was hugely controversial. It was misunderstood. There were people that were opposing this vehemently. We're not getting that with ten. But I mean, your changes might, you said, result in a few more mayors coming on board. You might get a majority of mayors, but you're certainly not going to get all mayors around the country. And the cost of getting a few more mayors on board is potentially going to be thousands of dollars a year for ratepayers in the future. That's a terrible deal for New Zealanders. Well, not really, when you consider that, compared to what the alternative is, 
at the worst case scenario, there's still a 50% saving. That's a regional average. But the alternative is the four entity model that you've been pushing for the last 18 months. The alternative is not, because we're a few months away from a general election. Now, if we don't get this across the line, they are going to be stuck with the status quo. Let's not beat around the bush. The National Party have a policy. If they win the election, they will be removing the entities. They've said so themselves. They'll be putting ratepayers back to square one and they'll be facing those massive bills. And I think of when my family's from Manekatahuna, the Tararua district, mm. the fourth largest roading network in the country. They've got to find $600 million over the next 30 years and they've got 12,000 people. They simply cannot do it. And if you do what the National Party's proposed and have a voluntary CCO model, who the hell is going to voluntarily join up with the Tararua district? And I can give you examples of councils like that yeah. all across the country. And it's not their fault. They've inherited this situation. So as a minister that's been asked by the Prime Minister to come in and find a compromise here, to get this across the line, because we believe in it, it has to happen, the sector says so itself, mm. I'm going to find a compromise. The argument you're putting forward, we could have said the same thing with four. Yeah, OK, you're going to save some money, but nowhere near as much as one. Why don't you just do one? There's a scale, and we've got to land it somewhere, and I'm comfortable with ten. What's to stop the entities from getting into unsustainable debt? Well, there's uh, one thing that we've brought in that wasn't there before, and that's a, a mechanism by which entities can merge. Now, if 75% of one regional representative group is in favour, and 75% of another group is in favour, it'll just happen. The government's not going to get in the way. We will set this with 10 and then step back and leave it to the sector. If regions want to merge, they can. And I reckon, as they start to look at the efficiencies that come with scale, we will see some merges relatively quickly. The key thing for us as a government is to get buy-in broadly in the public that reform is required and that this is the only way forward. Once we've done that, then it's up to regions what they decide is best for them. I want to ask you about Gore as well and uh, the Mayor of Gore, Ben Bell. The relationship between him and the Chief Executive of the Council has reportedly completely broken down. Are you considering commissioners? Not at this point. We are keeping a close eye on it. Um, DIA officials have gone down to meet with the Council to get a gauge as to what's happening and uh, working with them to see if there's a way forward through this. That's the appropriate approach at this time. It's a pretty high bar to consider commissioners and there are steps that can be taken uh, before that step. So the two most recent examples that come to mind, Tauranga and Invercargill, um, there were commissioners put into Tauranga because at the end of all those processes it was deemed that there was no other solution. And in Invercargill, for example, we didn't get that far because having um, uh, independent assistance was en uh, enough for that council to meet their statutory requirements. So as Minister, that's all I care about, really. Uh, I'm not going to get involved if there's a breakdown in relationship, but if that breakdown in relationship means that the council can't function, that's a different story. That is the Minister for Local Government, Kieran McAnulty. After the break on Q&A, we ask one of the world's leading free speech academics what she thinks of this, was Posey Parker denied a right to free speech? Kia ora te whanau. welcome back to Q&A. As the former president of the American Civil Liberties Union, Professor Nadine Strossen has dedicated much of her life to the defence of free speech. Although the government has delayed its hate speech law changes until after the election, Strossen has been in New Zealand this week, meeting with officials to express her concerns about the potential for misguided reforms. 
I have real concerns because although I could not be more opposed to hatred and more committed to reducing it, if not eliminating it, my observation, both in my country and countries around the world throughout history, is no matter how well intended the censorship laws are, they are at best ineffective in eliminating hatred, hateful attitudes and hateful actions, and at worst, counterproductive often silencing disproportionately the very minority groups that they are intended to protect. Do you have those concerns for New Zealand? I do have those concerns for New Zealand. It's a very special country, Jack, but uh, it is no exception to the general proposition that whoever has discretionary power to enforce such an inherently subjective, malleable concept as hate, uh, hateful expression, mm predictably is going to use that power in ways that tend to reinforce existing power structures and tend disproportionately to silence political minorities, identity minorities. Right. Okay. I, I think given the complexity of the subject, it would be helpful to strip things back to first principles. So under what terms is it necessary for speech to be restricted? and who should be responsible for restricting it? You have asked exactly the right question. When is it necessary to restrict speech? And that is the standard under not only US law, but international law under the United Nations and in many other countries. Government may and should restrict speech when the restriction is necessary to produce some countervailing goal of great importance, mm. including personal safety, equality, dignity, national security. But that is exactly where these overly broad, overly vague hate speech laws fail, because not only do they not advance equality, they actually tend to do the opposite by coming back to silence those whose views are unpopular. So the hate speech laws in the United States used to exist before the Supreme Court started strongly protecting freedom of speech in the middle 20th century. And whose voices were considered hateful, those of Martin Luther King and other pro-civil rights demonstrators, those of anti-Vietnam War activists, those of advocates of the Rainbow Coalition rights and uh, rights of everybody who uh, was trying to change the status quo. So is the threshold for speech that should be restricted only when it directly incites violence? That is one example of speech that is, in fact, necessary yeah. to be restricted. We often call that the emergency standard. So intentional incitement of imminent violence that's likely to happen. But there are other examples. Um, one example, Jack, is what we call a uh, true threat. When I am aiming as a speaker at a particular individual or small group and intend to instill a reasonable fear that you're going to be subject to violence or targeted harassment or bullying. Right. But there are also many other examples, such as defamation, perjury. Yeah, yeah, there are other examples. But let's look at uh, the law as it stands in New Zealand at the moment. As you know, efforts to alter New Zealand's laws on this front have been uh, delayed for the time being. But currently under the Human Rights Act 1993, it's illegal to publish or distribute threatening, abusive or insulting words, quote, likely to excite hostility against against or bring into contempt any group on the grounds of colour, race, ethnic or national origins. Is that an appropriate definition 
for speech that should be restricted? No, because the concepts are so elastic, likely to incite hostility. That, and I can tell you, that kind of loose uh, standard has mm -hmm. been used in my country, and I assume it would be in yours, to suppress even really important perspectives mm -hmm. on these issues, such as, you know, in the United States, we have a lot of debate about police excessive violence, including mm -hmm. against minority communities. And yet we have the Black Lives Matter activist movement being attacked by many powerful officials as hate speech, as inciting hostility against white people right. or inciting hostility against police officers. See, see, it's interesting, though, because that law in New Zealand has been used extremely rarely. I know. And, and, and you think that it's still inappropriate well, for protecting I, speech? I think it's inappropriate by definition. When it is rarely enforced, it's not doing anything meaningful to attack the root causes of these attitudes. So right? what would be a meaningful change to that law? Uh, to uh, eliminate most of the language and confine it to intentional incitement of imminent violence or lawless action against anybody. Because okay, all, that's an of us, point. all of us should be entitled okay, to that so protection. Okay, so that is a really important point because one of the concerns uh, amongst advocacy groups in New Zealand uh, is the groups that, that do and don't have protections under the law as it stands. So the groups at the moment, colour, race, ethnic or national origins are the ones that have that protected status. So should religious groups, rainbow groups, disabled groups, other groups be afforded the same status? Every individual should be protected against being targeted by intentional incitement of imminent violence and by or lawlessness. And by the way, every single one of us belongs to multiple of those categories, mm. right? You and I belong to, you know, racial and gender and ethnic and religious categories, mm. among others. But we're human beings entitled to freedom of speech, entitled to safety, entitled to equal protection under the laws. I want to ask you about the activist known as Posey Parker. What did you think about her experience in New Zealand? From what I have read, that she was not allowed to proceed with a speech that she had been invited to give in a public venue, therefore depriving her of freedom of speech. How, to how was she not allowed to? Oh, I was heard that there were not only noisy disruptions, but that she was actually subject to physical assault, mm. having some uh, material thrown at her, and uh, to menacing intimidation. And certainly, uh, you could literally try to speak, but if you are in reasonable fear of your safety, that is, as I said, punishable even under very speech protective law, because you are, it's what we call the heckler's veto, mm. where those who are objecting to her ideas are going beyond peaceful, non-disruptive protest and actually making it dangerous for her to proceed, therefore depriving her of free speech and also the freedom of audience members to hear what she has to say. Uh, there's no doubt that she had some sort of tomato juice or similar mm -hmm. poured over mm -hmm. her. There's no doubt that in what was largely a very peaceful protest mm -hmm. or counter-protest, there were small elements of mm -hmm. argy-bargy, of pushing. I think one person was punched in the mm -hmm. face. So mm -hmm. all of those things mm -hmm. certainly happened. If we were to imagine an alternative scenario where Posey Parker had come to New Zealand, had mm. sought to speak, had mm. sought a platform to speak, mm. and those protesters had stood there without any argy-bargy whatsoever, mm -hmm. without any sort of physical mm -hmm. interactions mm -hmm. with Posey Parker, but had simply shouted over her, 
would they not be exercising their rights to free speech? They, they certainly would have the right to shout briefly. But if they are shouting in such a sustained manner that they prevent her from being heard and audience members from hearing her, that is an effective censorship, right? The message cannot be conveyed. Right. So, so part of ensuring free speech is ensuring that people such as Posey Parker do have a platform. Absolutely. Although, if you're talking about, say, a private university, you have no right to speak there. I had mm. a great privilege, thanks to the organizing efforts of the New Zealand Free Speech Union, to be invited to the University of Auckland. I didn't have a right to speak there. Uh, it was a privilege. But if you're talking about a public venue, a public park, uh, there is this notion that government may never deny access to that kind of open public facility based on disagreement with the viewpoint right. of the speaker. It wasn't government, though. That's mm. the point here. Mm -hmm. the, these, were, these were individuals who chose oh, to turn up. But it, oh, oh, but if they invited her to speak... and The government didn't invite her to speak. No, no, but yeah, I'm right. saying if, if individuals in New Zealand invited her to speak, she was entitled to mm. the opportunity... She wasn't entitled to get the invitation, mm. but once she got the invitation, she was entitled to be heard by those who chose to listen to her. But, I mean, they could have theoretically invited her to a private venue where mm. there would not have been protesters. Instead, they chose to hold it in a public space. That is a very important right because you want the opportunity to not only preach to the choir but to try to persuade a larger audience, to educate a larger right. audience. Not sure she persuaded many people <laughs> while she was in New Zealand. In developed democracies right now, what do you see as the most significant threats to free speech? Jack, in developed democracies, even where we have strong legal protection for free speech, we still have what is often called cancel culture, where people are unduly self-censoring, going beyond being polite and civil and courteous, but not talking about certain really important subjects for fear of being accused of being a racist or a transphobe or, you know, and, and to our credit, we all abhor being uh, 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 targeted by those epithets. It shows what progress we've made toward equality. Mm. But when the result is that we are not debating important policies about these urgent matters of public concern, that is really dangerous. And that's a threat that I've heard is occurring here. It certainly is in the United States. That's such a difficult balance, though, isn't it? Because free speech is not the same as being free from consequences of Absolutely. your speech. And as you say, delicate balance is exactly the term that we use in American law. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of judgment and degree. And so there's a concept of disproportionality that also uh, is an internationally recognized legal concept that if people are so unduly punished mm -hmm. and fearful of losing their jobs, being kicked out of school if they're a student, being shamed, shunned and ostracized by their community, that goes too far. Certainly, robust criticism is mm. to be welcomed and is an exercise of, of counter-speech, as we say. I wrote an entire book mm. called Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Speech, Not Censorship. So I'm all in favor of counter-speech, but not disruptive protests mm. that prevent the speech from going forward at all. Finally then, I know you've got to fly back, how are your meetings with New Zealand officials? I have had a wonderful time. I have had the opportunity to meet with, for example, the President 
president of the Law Commission and many uh, interagency group mm. of government officials who wonderfully are concerned about how do we reduce actual hatred and discrimination? How do we change the attitudes? How do we prevent and punish actual violence and discrimination? And I think saw a lot of support for educational initiatives, more speech rather than less speech. That is Professor Nadine Strossen. She's the former head of the ACLU. We are almost done for today. Don't forget that every week on Q&A, we publish the show as a podcast. So if you want to go back and listen to the interviews once again, because, of course, you're going to watch the interviews first, right? Uh, you can download that podcast by searching at NZQ&A on all of your podcast platforms. For now, though, kumutu. That is Q&A for this week. From the Q&A team, thank you for watching. Nā mihi ki karere. Thank you for your feedback. Hey Tera Wiki, we will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.